Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to The Independent's Coronavirus Podcast. I'm David Marley, Deputy Editor at The Independent. This podcast is about getting behind the headlines, examining the issues that are affecting our lives as we try to navigate our way through these extraordinary times. It also gives us a chance to find out more about the wider impact of the virus and how the rest of the world is coping and responding. Today, I'm joined by the Independence policy correspondent, John Stone. Before he returned to London in March, John spent almost three years in Brussels covering Brexit. It seems a lifetime ago that the news was dominated by talk of our relationship with the EU and on what terms we would leave. Countless stories on the withdrawal agreement, the backstop, and record government defeats in the Commons. In the wake of coronavirus, our obsession with Brexit has finally started to go away, although discussions about our future relationship with the bloc continue. But how is the EU coping with this crisis? France, Italy and Spain have all been very badly affected, but the impact has been far from consistent and different countries have responded in different ways with some suggesting that the longer-term impact of the virus could be to undermine the whole European project. So, John, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted you found the time to be with us today. Can you start by giving us an overview of how the European has responded to this crisis? Hi, David. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me on. The first thing to remember is that um, health, public health, that isn't a... um, that's not traditionally been a responsibility of the European Commission, of the European Union. So it's something that member states have managed on their own. Um, and we've seen countries do it in different ways. Um, although most have now fallen in with similar types of things like lock, lockdowns and uh, restrictions on freedom of movements, although there are exceptions. But over the course of the pandemic, the European Commission, basically what we would call Brussels, when we were writing about the EU, has got involved um, although it did take some time for that to happen. You may have seen criticism in the media at the, at the lack of help for Italy when the outbreak was focused on Italy. Now you could obviously ask whether that criticism is reasonable or not, um, because it's not technically the EU's responsibility to, to do anything on this. But they are now, so it has now ground into gear, and there are a number of areas in which it's responding. So the EU initially started to get involved, actually, for a very specific reason, which if there's one thing that Brussels cares about, it's to, to safeguard the, uh, the European project. So basically, the crisis actually in its initial stages looked like it was going to kind of damage the European project. So you had countries throwing up border controls between each other, and that undermines free movement, uh, quite, a, quite a big cornerstone of, of the EU. Um, you had some countries uh, even putting export bans on um, protective equipment. So for instance, Germany... Um, 
actually even started to impose export bans on um, protective equipment, which Germany makes a lot of the protective equipment in Europe and other countries relied on its deliveries. So um, Brussels looked at this and said, well, it's these actions are undermining the single market. Countries are going their own way. What can we do about this? Um, and although there was a lot of um, rhetoric from, say, Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, she was saying, oh, the, the pandemic doesn't respect borders, which is, you know, true, very, very true. Um, I think the actual impetus for the commission getting involved was actually the perceived threat to European unity rather than, you know, a, a particular sense of duty that it was their job to get involved in the pandemic because it, it is a competence of member states. Have they, have they been able to do that then? Have they been able to impose some kind of more unified approach or are states still kind of going their own way and just looking to protect, understandably protect their own, their own populations? So there's certainly, they've certainly done things and announced initiatives, whether it's cosmetic or whether member states are um, actually falling into line is difficult, difficult to say, and it probably varies on a case by case basis. So um, the, the first thing the commission did when countries started throwing up borders with each other was they actually announced um, a sort of a general closure, closure of the European Union's external borders for non-essential travel. And the hope there was that once you close the borders externally, that will allow countries to reopen their borders within the bloc with each other. Um, that hasn't really happened, but now that the virus is everywhere, it doesn't, and no one's really traveling, that doesn't, it doesn't really matter. One problem that was being created by countries closing borders with each other was um, you actually started to have disruption in freight flows. So there was actually a 37 mile tailback between, on the border between Germany and Poland, which is exactly the sort of thing that sets red lights flashing in Brussels. Um, and they managed to solve that by intervening and introducing something called, uh, they call them green lanes, basically priority border crossings for uh, trucks. Uh, and that actually did solve that problem. So you, you could argue in that, in that respect it was successful. Although there are still restrictions on movement between EU countries, but then it's not, people aren't really trying to move between EU countries at the moment unless they're delivering very, very much. So the other approach that the Commission took is that they also kind of tried to give member states something positive to show how the European project could help them and that they tackle the virus and that they do things that they couldn't do by themselves. Um, so the first thing that they did is they've had regular meetings of EU ministers and even EU leaders by video conference. And there have been about half a dozen of the leaders now. And actually the, the Home Affairs and Health Ministers actually meet several times a week via video conference. It's quite a significant thing. And, it's, and it is interesting to think, actually, that if the UK was in the European Union, this would be a, a regular news event that we would be covering because, you know, you'd have Matt Hancock going on calls with the other 27 ministers, you'd have Boris Johnson chatting with Angela Merkel and things like that in quite a high-profile way, but that's, that's obviously not happening. Um, and has, it, has it been a kind of Germany-France-led led effort in those, in those meetings? Obviously, Germany's been pretty heavily and widely praised for the, the kind of the way that it's tackled the crisis. They've actually been mostly split, uh, France and Germany, on a lot of issues. That one particular, so the, one of the other things that the European Commission has done is they're, they're sort of looking to, they're trying to organise what they call a rescue package, uh, like a stimulus. Uh, basically, this is to do with the economic fallout of the um, pandemic. 
So it's not um, it's not something to fight the pandemic, but essentially it's how do we stop the European economy grinding to a halt when this is all over? And France and Germany have actually more or less, although it's maybe a bit of a simplification, but they've more or less gone on different sides of that. So um, Germany is much more wary of spending money and doesn't want to um, be rushed into any European integration that it didn't really you know it doesn't really want to cede more powers to the commission whereas macron in france is significantly more um he's more enthusiastic about that and he's more sympathetic to countries like spain and italy that are saying well you need to send us some cash because what's european solidarity if it's not to help us out in a crisis that stimulus package is actually probably one it's probably the biggest thing the european union is doing now it's dominated debate on the continent at a european level um, although most countries are looking, are also looking inwards in the same way as the UK to their national health authorities. There was some progress made on that stimulus package last week, actually. Um, it was a big European, uh, European Council meeting, again, video conferenced. Uh, it's basically the equivalent of a summit, but done via video conference for obvious reasons, social distancing. Basically, some countries wanted a big redistribution. Some countries wanted a more modest programme of loans. You can probably guess that richer countries generally wanted to pay less and poorer countries generally wanted to pay more. Um, it's sometimes portrayed as a north and south division, the rich north with the, the poorer south. Again, that's quite vague, but there's also kind of a second layer to it. So as I said, Macron wants more integration, but Germany is less in favour of it. Um, is, there a, is there a sense that, um, I mean, obviously we were the... Uh... The, the prime, the kind of the, the the number one malcontent in the in the EU when we were there. If we if we've now left, is there a sense that different countries are using the crisis to push their own agenda on this? We know that um, when we were there, we were kind of obviously causing a lot of problems for the EU. Didn't want further integration. We know that Macron does. Are different countries using this to kind of push their own wider European uh, agendas? Yes, I th- I think that's undoubtedly true, particularly on um, Macron. I mean, it's it's a cliche that oh, change comes in crises or crises are opportunity, and I think, but it's a cliche that everybody is aware of. And whether or not it's actually a good way of making European policy, it is actually the way that European policy has been made. Uh, the big changes to European structure in the past have tended to happen in times of crisis. It's a time you can bounce people out of positions which long held positions that they've been stubbornly entrenched in. And I think that's particularly people who want more integration. That's uh, that's been something that they have um, they have seized upon. But um, you mentioned the UK not being in, being the intransigent one. It's actually interesting because there was. I remember when the UK was leaving. There was actually some. Um, there was an interesting idea going around. Some um, people would say, "Well, the UK is often seen as uh, the UK is a." A sort of a useful excuse for a lot of countries who don't actually want to do things but they would just say they would just blame the uk because they knew that they knew that they could rely on britain to basically block any change and now a lot of those countries are actually having to come out and do their own dirty work so the netherlands is sometimes described as the new britain because they are the guys who don't want to do anything basically um they the netherlands has basically led the charge in opposing um giving the European Commission much more sweeping powers to borrow money on the currency markets in order to respond to this crisis, which was a key demand of, um, of the southern states like Spain and, uh, and which was broadly endorsed by Macron. The Netherlands side actually essentially won that, won that battle and um, there aren't really going to be any 
extensions of powers, but the, uh, to give more borrowing power to the commission. Although it, it, it's not going to be able to borrow money by itself without member states, but the compromise that was broadly reached last week in the meeting was that it's going to be able to, with the backing of member states in the way that it did before, borrow significant take get significantly more money on the capital markets but in the same way as it was doing before so there's not really a qualitative change in the way it's doing things it's more of a um it's just it's just massively ramping up the amount of what they call own resources it has um to respond to crisis like this it's um so um i mean that's a tentative compromise it it was reached last week and it won't be it, it, it won't be fully solved for a while, but I mean, the crisis will be going for a while, so they've got a while. It's also kind of interlinked with the EU budget negotiations, which is a sort of, they every seven years, they negotiate a new seven-year budget, and it takes, like, probably about two years to do it. It's a very wrangling process. Um, so it makes it even more complicated, and everybody's sort of fighting for their own position within that context. Aside from the stimulus package, there are actually a couple of other things that the Commission's done. Um, so one th- one thing is also focused on the end of the crisis. They want member states to relax their social distancing measures, their lockdowns in a synchronised way, and they've published an action plan. Um, I I think it's fair to say that this has basically been ignored by most member states. It's so that's, that's already not working, right? Yeah, I mean, everyone's doing it at different speeds and different paces, and... They don't really have any powers to force people to do it. The, the justification for putting it out initially was, well, it, all these measures were brought in in a haphazard way and that caused border controls to come up. So if we don't want border controls to, to be imposed again at the end of the crisis, well, we all need to do this in a synchronised way. But the problem is because we, all these countries have gone into the crisis at different points, they've also gone... I mean, they'll also be going out in the crisis at different points because they've dealt, dealt it in different ways. I mean, in a way, I can see why the Commission is sensitive about this because they're sensitive about the idea of European unity. But it is worth considering. I mean, if you look at uh, you know, a unitary state like Italy, Italy has imposed different restrictions and even travel restrictions between its own provinces. I, mean, I don't think anybody's talked... Well, I mean, maybe they are, but I don't think anybody seriously thinks that Italy is going to fall apart in the next... Um, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll eat my words on that when you never know what's going to happen these days. But um, and the Northern League is was obviously in government recently. But I mean, um, it is perhaps an oversensitivity. I mean, it it might be that travel restrictions between member states during a pandemic or doing things at different times is reasonable because countries are doing that inside. So if the EU is worried about not being seen as a a policy, then it can you know, maybe point out some, well, you can be a policy and do this stuff. It doesn't make you any less of a, any less of a intergovernmental organisation just because you have different policies in different parts of your um, area, so to speak. Sure. One, one of the, uh, one of the kind of things which has hit home in the UK is this kind of EU procurement scheme to get um, uh, protective equipment, uh, masks or ventilators or um, other kind of health, healthcare equipment, which very confusingly we seem to be have invited to have joined or we or, or, or not or there was an email that we did see or didn't see there was all kinds of excuses um, and kind of changing stories about why we had or hadn't joined that scheme what's the situation with that could 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 we have should we have would it have would it ever have alleviated some of the pressures we we currently see 
Yes, yeah, so um, that procurement scheme was probably the other big thing that the um, European Union has done for the crisis. And it's arguably, it has the potential to be a success, actually. Um, it's probably too early to tell, but it's probably one of the most concrete measures in tackling the crisis they've done. So the idea was to use the power of the single market, which if you include Britain has over 500 million people, it's basically the world's biggest economy, to get priority for protective equipment and ventilators, of which there's a global shortage because all countries are, you know, trying to buy up, buy up what they can. So the idea behind it is, well, you've got 500 million people, guaranteed orders, 20, 27 or 28 governments making orders for this stuff, suppliers will be very keen to prioritise these huge orders because they're very profitable. And it's actually, I mean, they have managed to place significant orders. That's a triumph in itself. And they say that they they should be getting more than they need. Although stuff hasn't physically yet been delivered, which critics of the scheme, particularly in the UK, do point out. Although it's not clear that that's necessarily a problem because the idea was to get more equipment arriving, basically, as you run out of stuff. Um, the UK is doing similar stuff. It's trying to secure... In the UK is independently, the UK is not part of the scheme, it's independently trying to secure supplies and protective equipment, and that's ongoing. A lot of that won't have been delivered. This is stuff that should be arriving within the next few weeks if it goes to plan. But the, the question of whether Britain is joining it or not is a is actually quite an interesting one. So the UK, as listeners may or may not know, is still in the transition period um, for Brexit. So it can participate in most union programmes. It's essentially treated as a member state for economic purposes, but has no say at the political level. Um, so that includes the procurement scheme, which the Commission did say in March the UK could join if it wanted to. Um, that, that was when the scheme was launched in mid-March broadly. There have been discussions about it before. And the UK basically decided not to participate. And since then, the government has basically kind of oscillated between two public lines as to why it didn't take part in the scheme on the one it, you've had ministers like Therese Coffey said uh, well it's pointless it, there's no there's no point like we can we can do all this alone we don't need the help of the, the single market to do it and then you've also had other ministers and Downing Street actually saying well we there was this screw up we missed taking part in the scheme there was an email that we didn't see something to that effect the the latter of those excuses the the one that Downing Street's pushing when they that they missed the email or they some, somehow weren't notified to take part in the scheme sounds, to be honest, pretty, it, it, it's insubstantial. I mean, there are minutes of UK officials being in meetings where the scheme was discussed. It was, I mean, as a journalist writing stories about this, we saw that the UK was invited to take part and wrote stories about politicians asking Downing Street to take part in the scheme. And um, it's, it would be very unless the government is like grossly incompetent it would be very very difficult for them to have actually missed that they were allowed to do this um i mean i would say impossible and i would say that they didn't miss it so i mean if you lay the timeline of events out it all looks very strange so for instance the deadline for placing orders under the scheme down the street said oh we missed the deadline to place orders we can't order anymore but we'll do it in the future well, the, the, the deadline was actually well after, it was like several weeks after Downing Street, Street said that they had, you know, oh, we missed the email, we couldn't do it. So it doesn't really stack up in that regard. Whether the scheme would have been useful or not, well, I mean, I, I'm afraid we don't have the information to tell whether the, uh, what, what that's like, but we do know that Matt Hancock, the health secretary, has been getting up um, on stage and 
over the last couple of months and saying, oh, we're working night and day to try and secure new supply lines for protective equipment. Could have been, a, this could have been, at the very least, could have been a good supply line. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems to be a supply line for protective equipment. It, as I say, it hasn't, it doesn't seem to have actually, the the things all done under the scheme haven't been, um, haven't been physically delivered yet, but that's because things take time to make and produce. And it does seem that it would have been useful. I mean, um, you know, and the government, and we've asked the government, like, is there a reason why? And they haven't really given a particularly good explanation as to why it's not useful and continue to say that they're searching for PPE, so for protective equipment. So it's um, quite a mysterious one, that, that one. Um, it's uh, it's a bit of a subplot, but I think, yeah, it, it does have the makings of potential scandal maybe when the dust settles and people uh, can pay a bit more attention to it. Work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Now, as, as you mentioned there, we are still in the transition period. So we've, we've, we've officially left the EU, no longer, no longer members. Brexit has happened, but we're in this transition period working out what the uh, trading relationship is going to be, supposedly, from the 1st of January next year. Now, there's been lots of questions raised about whether we can reach that deal whilst both, both, well, both us and the EU are dealing with a much more important issue at the moment. So what do you think the chances are? The government is standing firm, saying they're going to leave anyway, that they will strike a deal, stick to their timetable. Can Brexit talks and the kind of uh, future relationship talks really reach any kind of effective conclusion while this is all happening around it? It's, a, it's very difficult to know. Um, I mean, I suppose the whole thing has been unpredictable since the start. I mean, there are certainly difficult difficulties um, in, um, that have been caused by this. I mean, that's an understatement. But the specific ones with the talk, just to recap for anyone who hasn't been following that closely, they had, um, they had a round of talks uh, early in the year, the first round of trade talks, and you know they took some precautions. They put hand sanitizer on desks and things like that, but it wasn't being taken too seriously. And then the then the problems, the um, pandemic swept in quite quickly, and you know international travel was cancelled. The UK was very keen to continue talks and do do them via video conferencing, but the Commission, uh, the European side, was actually quite reticent to do that. And the justification that officials were giving for that was that it's very well to video conference between two sides, but you still on each side have to get 
several people into a room together to be on the conference. Um, that was what they, they argued anyway. Now they've started doing the talks via video conference. Um, they did the first round of video conference talks last week. As to whether the talks will actually make progress in time, that's difficult to say. There are the, the same stumbling blocks that you had before the break, before they resumed video conferencing. We were told that those there's been no progress on those stumbling blocks, essentially. Michel Barnier sounded pessimistic. I mean, he always sounds pessimistic, usually, but... <laughs> Uh, he, the, no, no, nobody really disputed what he was saying. Um, I think one of the biggest issues with this is that actually the way that a lot of diplomacy and negotiations work, yes, you have your officials, you have like two, there's about 200, about 225, I think is the number, officials involved in talks. Yes, they sit at tables, they argue about the technical stuff, they try and come to conclusions. But the way that these things are really unblocked is in the corridors outside, like side negotiations kind of off the record where you can show a bit more flexibility um, and those simply don't happen when video conferencing is happening I, actually Michel Barnier said this, said this in public it was quite a candid moment he said it was very very difficult to um, to see how that kind of diplomacy could be conducted now I know both sides are actually aware of that so it's possible that they're gonna uh, find some solution to it maybe they'll go for you know zoom drinks afterwards or something like that but it's um, but it, it certainly doesn't bear well, especially when we've we've had a couple of months out of an already extremely ambitious schedule and both sides don't seem like they really want to budge on this or really have the political bandwidth to think about budging because um, everyone's really talking about the um, about the pandemic and that's what governments are concerned with. Do you think um, there's resentment building in Brussels that um, when, they're, when they're trying to deal with this unprecedented crisis, they've also got... Um, the UK on the sidelines still demanding their attention? I don't think there'll be necessarily resentment as that the UK is leaving and demanding attention, but I think if there isn't a change in government position by June to extend, I think things could get a little bit fiery because they, yeah, basically for the reasons you've spelled out, it seems, you know, the Commission's argument is, well, Boris Johnson actually negotiated this withdrawal agreement that we had with him and he and the withdrawal agreement was we went through it line by line with him and it included an option to extend so it's very strange for Boris Johnson to now be saying well we've included this option to extend but we don't want to use it under any circumstances and we've legislated it out of existence in our domestic law that that would be their argument Boris Johnson would say well I was elected on a manifesto of not extending the transition period um perhaps you might argue that, well, they couldn't have foreseen that there was a global pandemic that made it impossible to conduct meaningful negotiations for several months um, and possibly longer, we don't know. But um, yeah, both sides will come to that. Uh, in terms of what the UK side are saying, they're absolutely emphatic. They won't be extending, that's what they say. But it is worth remembering that the UK government has pretty much since 2016, since the referendum, said at every available opportunity that it would not extend anything, it would never delay anything, and then equally at every available opportunity, so far it has delayed. <laughs> How many extensions were there last year? I, 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 I've lost count, I can't, I can't remember. Yeah, I mean, there's a long, long list. <laughs> there's a long list. It depends what you, it depends how you count, but I mean, you can say at least uh, at least three. But there's an argument for saying more. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's that's really the difficulty. There's also kind of a dynamic in the UK government, which is that 
although the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson got was more or less a compromise, a lot of senior Tories do actually believe their own PR, which is that it was a deal that they got, they got everything and they got it by brinkmanship, which is how they sold it to Brexiteer voters. Mm. But in terms of the actual reality of what happened, I think that's a misreading of the situation. But if they do genuinely believe their own PR and try and do brinkmanship on this, I mean, then a no deal is very likely. Um, the UK has to agree to extend or not by uh, June, uh, in June, the decision has to be made. There'll be a sort of a, a summit. It will probably be a video conference at this rate. Um, I hope it's a summit because I'd love to go back to Brussels and cover it, but um, <laughs> uh, I suspect we probably won't be there by then. Um, and they'll take stock. So that'll be the, the moment when we know whether that's, that's happening or not for sure. Um, although, to be honest, um, we probably won't really, really know until December because absolutely every deadline in this story gets pushed to the absolute maximum. So, yeah, we've got a long, long road ahead of us on Brexit. What you're, so what you're saying is that even though I thought we'd, we'd uh, stopped reporting about Brexit, in only June, in just a couple of months' time, it's going to be back uh, front and centre in, uh, in the agenda about whether we, whether we do or don't go for an extension. Yeah, well, I mean, that's actually up to us. It's up to other news organisations and it's up to readers and politicians how much attention people actually pay to this. Because, yeah, it's an important crunch moment. There are several deadlines coming up. After June, there needs to be a deal on fisheries by July. Um, that's not a hard deadline, but it's one that both sides have committed to. Um, and then there's more deadlines again in December. So there are Brexit deadlines scattered throughout all this year. But what could happen is that with Brexit being a much lower priority, it doesn't dominate the headlines in the same way because of the pandemic. The political dynamics change, and but we don't know which way they'll change. They could change in the sense that, well, people aren't paying attention to this. You can get away with more. So let's... Um, so, you know, extend the transition period. People won't be as angry. I mean, we've seen poll after poll show that actually a, quite a significant majority of people wouldn't, even Brexiteers, wouldn't really mind the transition period being extended because they can see this is a reasonable, this isn't something that they expected to happen. Um, you know, once in a century pandemic. But um, the, the alternative school of thought is, well, perhaps, and this is, I, I think uh, some diplomats do think that this is what may happen is that, Yes, so there's less scrutiny on the process, but there's also less scrutiny on the outcome. So those elements within the Conservative Party, within Downing Street, who would be quite happy with a no deal, but don't want to take the economic damage, or maybe even quite like the idea of a no deal. Um, not saying that that's it's not government policy, but um, there are some in the Conservative Party who have been arguing for a no deal all along. That's not a secret. They might say, well, uh, yes we can get away with a no deal and also, you know, yeah, there'll be like economic damage, but it'll get tied up in the even greater economic damage or equally strong economic damage, or actually who knows, because it's all going to be the same economic damage of the pandemic. And it's very difficult to separate those two out. And while that's, that's an interesting point in terms of that specific decision, it's actually also just an uh, interesting to look at it as an overview. We'll actually never know how much damage Brexit does, no matter what happens, because we just had like the most single damaging economic event of the century happen like literally three months after it happened, or like one month after it. I mean, it was literally having while it happened. It's impossible to tell. Um, so those pub arguments are going to be going for quite a long time, I imagine. I, I don't think we're going to be able to sort to settle that one for anybody who's <laughs> a satisfying ending to that. It's the, per- it's the perfect cover. 
All right. Well, John, that's fascinating. Thank you very much um, for talking us through that stuff. Um, look forward to talking to you again when Brexit does come back on the agenda, inevitably. Um, and thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, if you're a new listener, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. If you have suggestions for things you'd like us to discuss, do get in touch on email at thecoronaviruspodcast at independent.co.uk, or you can use the hashtag IndieCoronavirusPodcast, I-N-D-Y, IndieCoronavirusPodcast, and we'll see your post. You can read all about the unfolding pandemic on our website, independent.co.uk, and in our downloadable daily edition. There's also an email newsletter you can sign up to with the latest news delivered daily to your inbox. Uh, Thank you uh, so much again for listening and please do join us again next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.